So we'll, this is how we'll uh, kick off this. Let me find the scripture. Yes, the reading of scripture this morning is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39, but we're going to start with the kids. It's kids. I think this is like one of the kids' faves. Got a couple riddles for you. We ready? Okay, thinking hats, caps, whatever. Turn on the brain. Come on, give me attention. Uh, I need your help here. I got two riddles for you. Here's the first one. Are you ready? We'll give you a second. Get ready. Okay, here we go. First riddle. I am never quite what I appear to be. Straightforward I seem, but it's only skin deep. For mystery often lies beneath my simple speech. Sharpen your wits, open your eyes, look beyond my disguise. What am I? That is actually really, really good. Uh, so we're going to put a pin in that. That was super helpful, Teddy. What's that, John? An angel. Mm, no, but this is good. The God angel vibe is, is going. Yes, go. Just throw out your answers. Jersey. What? What's that? Ooh, the devil. That's also kind of works. Y'all are thinking. Y'all are doing some meta thinking here. Good. Yeah. That is actually not right. That is really wrong. A pencil is not right. That we can say wrong. <laughs> okay. Richard. The Holy Spirit is good. We got God. We got the Holy Spirit. Angel, devils is good, is bad. Mm, but this all, this all works. What'd you say? The Lord. This is good. Okay, we're tracking. We're going to give William one more. Go ahead. Try again, William. Jesus. Okay, good. This is, okay. <laughs> I actually want to get y'all off of God, angels, demons. What's that? Oh, say it again, Francis. A riddle. I'm never quite what I appear to be. Straightforward I seem, but it's only skin deep. For mystery often lies beneath my simple speech. Sharpen your wits, open your eyes, look beyond my disguise. It's a riddle. Good job, Francis. Okay, here's one more riddle. I got one more riddle for you, okay? One more riddle. Uh, and this one, when asked this next riddle, 80% of kindergartners got this riddle right. And, but only 17% of Stanford students, which is like a really smart college out in California, only 17% of Stanford seniors got this. Okay, ready? All right, what is this? The poor have it. The rich need it. If you eat it, you'll die. More evil than the devil and greater than God. Y'all almost, y'all are too eager, which means you probably really know it. <laughs> William, you've had too many guesses already. Paul, you also look like you really know it. Hey, right, Paul, go for it. Nothing. Say it again. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Paul and William got it right. That way to go. Okay, listen to this again. The answer is nothing. The poor have it, the rich need it. If you eat it, you'll die. More evil than the devil. There's nothing more evil than the devil. And greater than God. What's greater than God? Nothing. Nothing is greater than God. And yet, now we're going to go back to the first one. This is why this was good. We got the Lord. We got God. We got angels. We got uh, Jesus. Nothing is greater than God. And yet God to us, he seems like a riddle. God seems like the greatest riddle of all. Uh, 
so, so what is, what is the clearest, best way to know God? Like, what is God like? And what does he think of you? And how much does he love you? What is the clearest way to answer that question? Like, where can you look to know who God is? Elizabeth, the Bible, and who is the Bible all about? Good, good. But that brings us back to our original question. How can we know God most clearly? You're going to look at Jesus. You're going to look at Jesus. If you want to know, ooh, what is God like and what does he think of me? You look at Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you all know what he thinks of you? Because there are going to be some people, Henry knows, there are going to be some people who are going to tell you that Jesus is a nice guy. He's just not a big deal. Other people will tell you that Jesus is actually crazy. And then other people will tell you that Jesus is actually a bad guy. You shouldn't trust him. Those are actually not the right answer to the riddle of who is God, who is Jesus. The truth is, this is the big crazy thing about Christmas, about Jesus, that Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man, and this is what he did. He came down from heaven to live for you and to die for you for your sins and to be raised from the dead to beat your sins and the death, and now he reigns in heaven, and he loves you. That's who Jesus is. That's what he came to do, and he did it because he loves you. Here's what you were supposed to believe about Jesus, kids. You were supposed to believe that Jesus did what you cannot do. Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. He saved you. And you were supposed to believe that he loves you right now. And he's watching over you in heaven. And you were supposed to believe this, that Jesus loves you, that he saved you, and that you're not alone in this. Like kids, please hear that. You are not alone in this thing. That Jesus' love is for you, and look around you, it's for us. It's for anybody who wants it. That's what you're supposed to believe about Jesus. And now for Advent this year, this is what we're doing. We are considering some of those other Christmas stories that don't get all the press, that don't get all the attention, that you may not hear that much, but are super awesome and super Christmassy. Uh, we looked at Joseph last Sunday because Mary gets all the attention with the birth announcement and baby Jesus. And now we're going to look at Mary. Uh, now, we are going to look at Mary, but we're going to look at a Merry Christmas story that is not always highlighted around Christmas, but you've probably heard it before. We're going to look at Mary's song called the Magnificat, which is Latin, like we, we said this a little earlier, Latin for the first word in English, uh, magnify. So please stand for the scripture reading this morning that comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. It says, In those days... Mary arose. Just, sorry, just a little context. Mary has just, she got her birth announcement too. She got her visit from the angel like Joseph, and, uh, and she's been told the same thing Joseph has. She's going to have a baby by God. Uh, and it says this, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So there's, a, there's an account of a 19th century minister. He's preaching in London. He's preaching on the incarnation. And he says this. He says, There is no book more full of contradictions than the Bible. If there was no person who is both human and divine. It is said that at the incarnation we find ourselves at the intersection of three roads. One marked mystery, the other marked history, and the other marked divinity. So you got history, divinity, and mystery. Okay. Incarnation. But just because there is divinity and mystery here does not mean you turn off your brain when you get to the incarnation and you just feel with your heart kind of nonsense. As in, there are, there are pastors, there are evangelists, Christians who hear many, many people who don't believe this stuff say, uh, I'd love to believe what you believe about Christianity, but Christianity, church, it's all about believing. It's all about faith. And I'm, I'm more of a thinker. I'm, I'm rationalistic. Uh, I'm all about deduction. I'm, you know, I'm, I believe in science. Or, or something to the effect of that Jesus stuff may be your truth, but it's not my truth. And you will get very religious people. You'll even get Christians who will say, to really, really experience God— you do have to turn off that rational part of your brain. And you got to turn on the spiritual. you got to turn on the transcendental. you got to stop analyzing everything, and you got to start feeling. It's not about the intellect. It's about the emotion. Okay, except Mary here does not turn off her mind. She doesn't stop thinking about the news of her miracle baby in order to experience God. What you see here in the Magnificat is Mary sings about carrying and giving birth to the Son of God. You see Mary's head going into overdrive. Mary knows the Bible. And we know Mary knows the Bible because Mary's song is full of Old Testament scripture. My beloved uh, professor, uh, Old Testament professor, professor from seminary, Gordon Hugenberger. 
He has said that if he was writing a PhD program for seminary students, his general exam would be, without looking in the cross-reference section of your Bible, tell me five out of the 15 Old Testament scriptural references Mary makes in her Magnificat song, and you'll get your PhD. He says most PhDs in biblical studies couldn't give you five without doing some homework. For Mary, it flows out of her head because she knows her Bible. Another one of my beloved uh, professors from seminary would say, he often said this, he'd say, the gospel is so simple, you can talk about it in a matter of seconds, and at the same time, the gospel is so deep, it is so profound, we will sing about it, and we will talk about it forever and ever and ever, and it will only get richer and richer and richer. As in, you will never actually reach the depths of the gospel, and the more you do think on it, and the deeper you do go, the more it actually will change you and transform you. But our temptation is to not exert the effort to think about the deep things of the gospel. It is, it is a lot easier to not ask questions. It's a lot easier to just say, let's keep things simple. And then what happens to your faith is faith becomes an opiate. It becomes a winsome drug that just makes us feel good and it makes us feel safe. But then when things get hard and this stuff starts to make less and less sense of our lives on the surface, the more and more we move away from it because it seems to become irrelevant. Just finished a podcast, uh, and at the end, Paul David Tripp, he's been, I'm, this is no spoiler here if you know the podcast I'm talking about. Uh, at the end, Paul David Tripp here, he, he's author, he's a counselor, he's a churchman, he says this. He says, we should all be deconstructing our faith. Or we become loyal to the culture. We lose the way, and we become harmful to the church, and then the world rightly mocks us as hypocrites, and people walk away from the church, and leaders fall away, and ministries explode. Says we've got to do that thing, that forced self-reflection thing of taking a step back and asking those hard questions, uh, just that boil down to: Is this? the gospel that we are talking about and that we are holding out to each other and to others. As in, we have got to wrestle with the deep things of the gospel, uh, with the wonder. We've got to wrestle with our questions. We've got to wrestle with our doubts and our problems. And we need to do it not alone. We actually need to do it with each other. The gospel comes home from Mary and Elizabeth when Mary visits Elizabeth. An angel had visited Mary and delivered this news about this miracle baby. And when Mary gets this news, she does not immediately burst into song. No, it's when she's with Elizabeth who also believes this stuff that Mary bursts into song. And it's when Mary is in community with other believers it's when Mary is in community with other believers that she really gets it. And I say community, and you may, you may say, but wait, she's with one other person. That's not community. But yes, it is, because this is the church at this point. It's Mary, and it's Elizabeth. Mary's husband, Joseph, 
He doesn't, he had, you know, we did that news last time, but we should have done, we should have flip-flopped. Joseph hasn't heard this yet. Joseph doesn't know. Uh, uh, Elizabeth's husband does know Zachariah, and he doesn't believe. So it's Mary and it's Elizabeth. Luke says that Mary finds out the big news about her carrying the Son of God, and then the angel deliberately points Mary to her cousin Elizabeth, who is also carrying a miracle baby. So Mary runs to see Elizabeth, because who else is going to believe that Mary is carrying the Son of God, and she's got to talk to someone about this? And Elizabeth gets it too when Mary shows up. Elizabeth knows, because the angel has told her husband and her, knows her miracle baby. She's, been, she's barren. Uh, the angel comes and says, you and your husband are going to have a baby together. Uh, she gets pregnant, and she's told, she knows that her baby is going to be the last prophet to Israel, John the Baptist, and that John is going to prepare the way for the Lord himself. So when Mary shows up, and she greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth's unborn miracle baby hears the arrival of his Lord, unborn miracle baby Jesus, in the womb of Mary, and he leaps. This is John the Baptist getting to work, even in his mom's womb, preparing the way for the Lord. And Elizabeth gets it, and she believes, and she exclaims with a loud cry, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth gets it. She believes. She says Mary is the mother of her Lord. Like we said just earlier in the service, Lord is a reference to God. And how do we know for sure that it means that here? Because just after she says that, Elizabeth, using the same word, says... This is all that we're talking about. This is the fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So come on, Elizabeth. Which one? Is God in Mary's belly? Or is God in heaven who revealed that this would happen? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's very revealing that this early church it starts as a family. It's two cousins because the church is a family. And it's a weird family. Like every family, Elizabeth is in her 60s. Mary is barely a teenager. That's the beginning of the church. The seeds of the church are two seemingly insignificant pregnant women who are only pregnant by two miracles. And they need each other. Elizabeth gets it when Mary shows up, and Mary gets it when she's with Elizabeth. And it's together that we really get the gospel. Mary, and Mary had to work to get that fellowship. She had to seek it out 70 miles pregnant. Loved ones, we also have got to work this fellowship thing out to get the gospel. As it, just like with every loving relationship, you have, to, you have to work at being together. Whether it's with your spouse or your friend or your kid, whoever it might be, 
You have to work at being with someone else that you love. You have to work hard to make time for those that you love. It does not just happen. You have to work, we have to work at being together in order to bear one another's problems and love each other and comfort each other and get to know this Jesus. Al- Alistair Begg said this once. Um, we're going to try this. Uh, y- you can do everything on the internet, right? Put it to the test. Can you learn to swim on the internet? If you don't know how to swim, get on the net. Search breaststroke. And now let's learn together. Ready? Okay. In breaststroke, your arms are symmetrical during the pull. Starting in streamlined position, you'll sweep your hands out slightly, just past your shoulders. Then bend at the elbow to initiate an early vertical forearm catch. This, is, this part's important. A solid EVF, that's early vertical forearm catch, will turn your forearms into large paddles, helping you pull more water and reducing stress on your shoulders. Make sure you keep your elbows high. Think elbow above hand at all times. After initiating your catch, pull straight back with your hand, until your hands are in line with your nose. You'll lift your head to take a breath at this point. After taking a breath, join your fingertips back together and power your hands forward into streamline as you drop your head back into the water. Okay, now the kick. We haven't even done your legs yet. And then there's the glide. As in, the point, you can, you're, you're, you're not going to learn the breaststroke sitting on your couch. And the question is, have you ever been in the water? And the question is, did you ever take that plunge? If you think you're a swimmer, sitting on your couch, you're not a swimmer. And you, can't, you, can't, you can say, well, I'm an emotional swimmer. Uh, I, sw- I swim in my spirit. No, you don't. You don't swim. No one swims unless you get in the water. And the thing is, you've got to get in. And you cannot know this gospel about Jesus alone. You have to get in. And when you get around, <laughs> here's the thing, when you do get around other people trying to get to know Jesus, you get around other people, the more and more you realize how messed up and desperate people are and just how much we all need Jesus. Mary gets this too. Mary gets the gospel of Jesus because Mary thinks, she knows, she believes that she is a sinner in need of her miracle baby to save her. That's why she starts her song with, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's probably pointing at her belly. She gets what the gospel is, and she gets what the gospel is not, because the gospel is not the good get in and the bad don't. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the bad who know their need and believe Jesus meets that need, There's that, and then there's the bad who deny their need and so don't believe Jesus meets that need. Uh, Those are the two. As in the gospel is, all there is, is the bad. There is no good. All there is is the bad, the corrupt, the guilty. 
There are no bad and good. There are no corrupt and pure. There are no guilty and innocent. She sings this later. She says, He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. All there are in this world, all there have ever been since the fall, are guilty and corrupt people. There are the bad who are proud, who are arrogant, who are mighty, who are rich in their self-sufficiency and deny their need and deny their trust uh, of Jesus and trust their self-sufficiency. And then there are the bad who know they're needy and they run to Jesus like Mary. As in, loved ones, the nicest person you know, the nicest person that you know is just as broken as the prostitute. The most moral person you know is just as much in need as the murderer. Which is it's crazy. But it's the truth. And the bad people who are, who are hungry, who are hungry and desperate for help and salvation, the gospel is this. There is a Savior who has miraculously come for them. And it's Jesus. It is Mary's baby. Now, the incarnation, the incarnation is a riddle. It is. This like is, is a riddle. But the big question with the, with the incarnation is not how. Like, how did that happen? It's not how. The big riddle question with the incarnation is the why. As in, like, why did God bother to do this? And you can't answer, you, here's the, there's an answer to the riddle, but you can't answer that riddle if you divorce the beginning of Jesus' life from the end of his life, which is what we too often do at Christmas when we turn, you know, the incarnation into a Hallmark card. It's not. Uh, it, 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 as long as you're keeping the beginning of his life and the end of his life together, if God is going to save a bad people, the Son of God had to become man to die because, apart from the incarnation, the Son of God cannot die. There's another pastor, Kevin DeYoung, who, um, he's been a great, great help to me uh, with the incarnation. He's done some really great work with this. Um, He explains that if God, if God simply as God, thinking, Pastor, thinking, we're going deep here. If God simply as God can suffer and die, then what's the big deal with the incarnation? If God in heaven can suffer, then the incarnation is robbed of its glory. God in heaven does not suffer. If God in heaven can suffer, then it begs the question, why bother becoming a man? Here's the, glo- so that's the, here's the glory of the incarnation. Our God is not in our mess. He's not. If God in heaven suffers, then God coming to save us is just as much about, if not more, about God saving himself from his suffering as it is about saving us. In rescuing us, God is actually rescuing himself. But the Bible says that God reigns in heaven. The Bible says that God receives unceasing worship from the angels. 
that he does not need Mary's, he doesn't need Mary's song. He doesn't need our, he does not need our worship. He needs nothing from us. And he actually needs nothing from the angels either because he always has and he always will delight in his own glory. This is that stuff of the Trinity. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, there is a fullness of love and joy and fellowship which we can't add to and we cannot take away from. God is perfectly and fully content within himself without you. Now this is what's so amazing. This is what's so amazing. This God who is not in our mess, he gets involved in our mess. God's love really is all the more awesome because he does not need us to be okay for him to avoid suffering. God's love is actually all the more awesome because he does not need us. So why does he love us? Because he chooses to love us. God loves you because he loves you. Dorothy Sayers uh, was one of the authors. She's one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. She was a writer, and uh, she wasn't by her own uh, admission, her own description. She was not a particularly beautiful woman. She wrote a series of detective novels uh, about a guy named Lord Peter Whimsey, who is an English aristocrat. He's one of these gentleman detectives, uh, and he's a Sherlock Holmes figure. So uh, about halfway through the series, suddenly a woman character appears in the series, and she's named Harriet Vane. And she's one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And she writes detective novels. And she's not particularly beautiful. And over several novels, she and Peter Whimsey, they meet, they get to know each other, and they fall in love. And they get married, and they live happily ever after. And people obviously noticed that Harriet Vane sure looks a lot like her creator, Dorothy Sayers. And here's the point. It's, yes. The point is, Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she had created, and she saw one of her characters that she had created, and she pitied him because he was lonely. And she loved him. So she wrote herself into the story. Wrote herself into the world that she had created to make him happy. And they lived happily ever after. The the gospel is that God looked into the world that he had created and he sees us miserable and he sees us dying and he sees us headed for eternal destruction. And the divine author and narrator writes himself into the story. That's Christmas. And this is where the gospel is infinitely better than Dorothy Sayers and Peter Whimsey. Dorothy actually doesn't owe Peter anything, good or bad. God does owe us something, and it's not good. It's not love. After the fall, when Adam first sinned, yes, go back to the very beginning, the only thing God owed him, the only thing that God owes us is eternal justice. The only thing God owes us is actually wrath. 
our comfort in the midst of our suffering is that the Son of God, out of free love, extends favor toward a people who deserve the opposite of it. That is grace. Grace, I'm going to say this a million times, and then, grace is not unmerited favor. Grace is demerited favor. In the middle of your suffering, your great comfort is that the Son of God, in the incarnation, laid aside his immunity to pain in order to suffer for you. In order to take ultimate suffering for you. As Kevin DeYoung, he puts it this way, he says, The incarnation of the Son of God and then his death and crucifixion is more glorious, it is more mysterious, it is more loving, it is more gracious, because God in the person of Jesus was experiencing by his own free choice what God in himself had never experienced and would never experience again, human suffering. And it is only a God who can't suffer who took on humanity to suffer with us and for us, only a God like that can actually sympathize with us. Think about this. Who cares, who cares about a God who feels pain and suffers as a God? A God who suffers as God is actually not with us. He's not with us because that God is not suffering as one of us, as a human. You know who I can't relate to? God suffering as God. He doesn't get me. He doesn't get you. That God really does not know what I'm going through. We need a God who knows exactly what it is to be a human being. We need a God who knows exactly what we are feeling. Like you're suffering physically. God in Jesus Christ knows physical pain. You've been let down by a friend, by family. God and Jesus was betrayed by his friends and he's abandoned by his friends and his family. You live in shame. You live, you live and you think that you're all alone. God and Jesus hung naked, dying on a cross on Jerusalem's highway for all to see. Forsaken. Truly alone. In Jesus... And only in Jesus, God is with you. I mean, with this, is, is sadly, frustratingly, it's becoming more and more popular in the church to talk about incarnational ministry, as in incarnating Jesus' mission to others. I've done it, been there. I would just discourage us from doing that. I would discourage us from saying things like that because you cannot incarnate, you cannot incarnate any part of ministry any more than you can repeat Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. Like this miracle, it is utterly unique in history. There's nothing like it. And see, this is, that's the greatest news about it. it this, I think this is from Kevin DeYoung again. He said, Christ did not suffer simply to identify with us, but to rescue us. We need someone to do more than just feel our pain, our problems bigger than that. We need someone to triumph over our pain by conquering all that causes pain, sin, death, and the devil. The Son of God does that. And it begins with the incarnation and it ends with his death on the cross for you. That's good news. Look on him right now in your heart, in your head, with your mind. Look on him. And rejoice with me now in prayer as we pray together.
Please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.